0: Tonight on Arena Emily and Holy Island are among the movies up for review and Angela Georgiou on Living for Music and Art 51551 is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Down from the wily Windy Moors comes Emily Francis O'Connor's reimagining of the life of Wuthering Heights author Emily Bronte. While the 13th instalment in the Halloween franchise, Halloween Ends, will it prove unlucky for the serial killer Michael Myers? And existentialism abounds in Robert Manson's Holy Island in which a pair of wayfarers find themselves trapped on an island. Joining me in studio to discuss this week's releases are Ruth Barton and Paul Whittington. We'll start with Emily. We spoke to director Francis O'Connor on Monday night's programme. Um, despite being the author of Wuthering Heights here, Ruth, very little is really known about Emily Bronte. So what kind of biopic can Francis O'Connor make and did she choose to make?
1: Well, this is not the biopic that Bronte scholars were waiting for. And I suspect there's a lot of Disgruntled Brontë scholars creeping around the place, you know, with rather sad looks on their faces. Let's say so. It's it's it. She takes a very generous um, view of the truth. And instead what she does is she imagines how somebody could have written Wuthering Heights and what might have happened to them mm. to have experienced, which actually in, in real life Emily Bronte didn't, the extraordinary kind of melodrama in life that then she pours into, into Wuthering Heights. So so in, in this, I mean, she... Uh, Frances kind of plays loose with time she plays loose with who dies when she plays loose with yeah somebody's life that is very very little n- known about and we know much more um, for instance about um, Charlotte Bronte who yeah. who documented the family quite well so what she's done instead is she's Brilliantly imagine this full-blooded yeah. melodrama on the moors. This is Wuthering Heights, but its author is Wuthering yeah, Heights. Yeah,
0: it's kind of it, Wuthering Heights through the story of the Bronte sisters and yeah. whatever about the uh, Bronte scholars. Uh, Francis O'Connor said to myself, "I think those who are fans of Charlotte Bronte won't be too happy no, with it either."
1: She comes out as a kind of slightly sort of yeah, yeah, sort of mopey, moany yeah. kind of sister.
0: She also uh, does Francis O'Connor here invent characters, or at least. Take characters that uh, uh, that have some basis in truth and then brings them somewhere yes, well, else, she, particularly she, in the character of William Wakeman, I'm thinking. Uh, the, 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 the preacher, yeah, yeah, who
2: actually was a person. Um, but yes. He, he may have been keen on Anne, actually, so far as we know. But in this, he is uh, against his better judgment. He's, he's he's very keen on Emily.
0: Yeah. and, and um, So... the the dynamic that we're getting here are we in are we in a very uh, are we in the period or are we in a a of modern version of that period no
2: I I, I think I mean the language doesn't do that thing that some Mm. period films do and thank God it doesn't actually uh, uh, because it, it makes it vital but we're very much in the period and uh, I think as Ruth says it's very much imagining how somebody as sheltered as um, as uh, 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 Emily Jane Bronte could have come up with the story that she did uh, and the, the casting director in this film deserves uh, some sort of mm. award because everybody's brilliantly cast but especially uh, Emma Mackey who's a really Emmy. interesting Anglo-French actress and she's, she's excellent in this. Yeah and we're
0: going to hear a clip which features the aforementioned Emma Mackey her sister Anne played by Amelia Gething Charlotte played by Alexander Darling. And the William Waitman, some basis in truth, but mm. certainly not the guy that we're getting in, in this story, Oliver Jackson-Cohen. He gave a sermon about <laughs> about <laughs> rain and about how God is in every drop of rain. And that tickled the fancy of the three sisters, no end, as we'll hear. What
3: are you going to give them? There's nothing left but bread. Did you hear them? Mr. Waitman, wasn't he?
4: Insufferable. Did you hear what Reverend Miller said? The meaning of life and a cup of tea. <laughs> what
1: about Waitman's sermon? The actual words were all right.
4: He speaks with such poetry,
1: such truth. that any man can speak. What I want to know is, can he actually do?
2: Do what? Uh, An empty plate. So, I don't think we've been properly introduced. Uh, Mr. William Wakeman. Do, do any of you actually speak English?
5: <laughs> I do. I mean. This is Emily, Anne, and Charlotte. I'm Charlotte.
2: God bless you all.
3: Your sermon was very...
2: Oh, uh, was it too much? I, er... Uh, <laughs> actually, I, well, I thought halfway through, I uh, planned to be a lot more eloquent. But um, when you get up there, it just...
3: Nature is always an inspiration. Yes, nature
0: was wonderful.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Though, uh, Job is very dramatic. Anywhere for Job.
4: The rain was a good choice. Thank you. I do wonder, though,
1: how does God squeeze himself into all that rain?
0: When
2: you, <laughs> when you see it, that scene, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's, it's, it's actually, it's beautifully played.
1: Oh, beautiful, because those poses are just brilliant as everybody sort of gathers And themselves. the camera is moving around. It is, it's the, really, the, and actually that mobile camera work is part of what makes it feel much more modern. Yeah. Than yeah. Emma yeah. Mackey
0: is Emily Bronte, and Emily yeah. Gething is Anne, and Alexander Darling is Charlotte, and William Whitman, played by Oliver Jackson cohen And I was saying, Ruth, about, the, there, there's a point in the film, and I, I can't, I can't, Precisely pinpointed, but for initially, I was thinking, yeah, this is just here we go with another run of the mill period drama. But it takes a twist or a turn and I think it's probably down to Emma Mackey that oh, he I, helps I thought, twist and turn it.
1: Yeah, I thought she was, I mean, like Paul, I just thought she was brilliant, brilliantly cast. I mean, people will know her from sex education and, mm. and hopefully that'll bring in a whole younger generation who perhaps mightn't have gone to see what they would have perceived as a sort of dull period drama because this is far from dull. And she's got, I mean, as, as well as just being beautiful, she's got a really expressive face and, 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 and the point is, as you get in this clip, is that in the beginning she does find him the rather dull milksop mm. that he actually is. And 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 so she's quite dismissive of him. Whereas the, I mean, not only have the sisters found that his that his sermons you know send their knees a quiver, but actually the whole congregation is very remote <laughs> and sheltered. Yeah. Place, so, and she's the only one who just to resist him. But of course, mm. as we know, because it's a melodrama, she will uh, yeah, yeah. revisit her yeah. first yeah. opinion I th- of I, him. I,
2: I think someone as well, sorry, Sean. I think someone as well has very carefully looked at that. And um, portrait of the sisters that branwell did and at branwell's self portrait because they they, they they all look as they should uh, especially the actress who plays charlotte it's 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 really well yeah done. And,
0: and, and branwell is played by the brother is played by uh, fionn whitehead let's yes. let's listen to a clip between there's a there's a closeness between himself and and emily that's uh, kind of brought out in this version of the story at any rate here they are on the moors talking about freedom
3: do you think i could be a writer
0: Perhaps.
2: You have to show me something first, though.
3: I have lots of stories. Should we go back? Mm. <clears throat> What's this? Hmm? Oh, yes. My creed.
1: Don't let Aunt B see that.
5: I don't care if she sees it or not.
3: Freedom in thought.
5: Mm, Yes, but you can't say it, though. You have to shout it.
3: Freedom in thought! What are you doing? You try. No, you're being silly.
0: I'm deadly serious. Come
1: on. No, someone might hear us. Oh, yeah. They might. Freedom in thought! Freedom
2: in
0: thought! (laughs) Try it.
5: Freedom in thought.
0: Oh, a pathetic attempt. Look, freedom in thought. Come on, really get behind it.
5: Freedom in thought.
0: Come on, give it some welly. Freedom in thought.
4: Freedom in thought.
0: Emily Jane,
1: I think Reverend Miller might have just fallen off his chair in the rectory. Good.
4: Freedom
2: in thought. Freedom
0: John Whitehead and Emma Mackey there as uh, Branwell and Emily Bronte, respectively. I I think, uh, just to to wrap up on it, Ruth, uh, what Frances O'Connor, who is no stranger to uh, period drama and kind of odd takes on period drama, if you like, as an actress, she's done something extraordinary here.
1: Oh, I think absolutely extraordinary because she's really revived the period piece drama and and, and she's brought in... She's really been just so imaginative Mm. with the biopic as well. And so... I think that it's it does feel very modern to me because of well, because of the performances, because of the music, and and its pacing, it really right. it whips along. So I think I think it's fantastic. And it's stars? imaginative. I give it four out of five.
0: Four out of five. What are you saying overall on this one, Paul?
2: Uh, I, I, I I would agree. I think that the the, the re- it's been faithful to the the the, the, the spirit of that book, mm-hmm. and it also weaves the idea of the book throughout the film in this very very clever way. So yeah, four and a half stars. And Frances
0: yeah. O'Connor proves that she yes. can direct. Oh yeah yeah. yeah yeah no,
1: she she should do something else. Yeah yeah. And, yeah. And, and,
0: yeah. And from my speaking to her, and she wrote the script as well. She, she's mad keen. To yeah, <laughs> well, let's Since she was let's 16, hook, I believe, yeah she, yeah. she read it when she was 16. Yeah. All right, let us move on then to film number two. You've seen this one, Paul. The 13th instalment of the Halloween franchise. It opens with a rather unexpected prologue. So yeah, tell yeah, us a little bit. Which yeah, <laughs> had hoping. Uh, it's had you hoping. It,
2: it does, yeah. Because, you know, to catch everybody up, I mean, the last... Uh, there was a revival a couple of years ago Jamie mm. Lee Curtis came back for it which gave it a certain amount of kind of kudos and she's been all over the place talking about it and she's a great character, she's great fun uh, so we had that then we had Halloween Kills last year in which, which was an absolute bloodbath and at the end of it didn't your man escape again like from a mob somehow yeah. and he killed uh, Laurie Strode's daughter which is very unpleasant of him and then he disappeared into the night so he's gone he's probably not dead uh, and then this fella called Corey turns up, who seems pleasant, very clever prologue, and he's looking after this not very pleasant little boy uh, who locks him in a room and there's an accident. He kicks the door open and doesn't the boy tumble over uh, a three st- down three stories and he's dead. So uh, it was an accident, <laughs> but nobody uh, uh, no nobody. We're in Spooky in land, we're, we're in Spooky Land. It's an accident, but everybody blames him. So he's now a pariah in the town. Right. And after getting beaten up by these teenage boys, he ends up in the sewers where he meets... Michael Myers who does not kill him
0: alright oh, so yes. there's a little partnership yeah. going on yeah. here yeah. Um, how's Laurie holding up in the midst of all of this Do you know
2: remarkably well considering your daughter died only, only, only recently only last year she's she's living with her granddaughter uh, Alison who's a major character in the film mm. because your man Corey is simultaneously going out with her but she's writing her memoir it's making you feel better But of course Your man's about to reappear
0: The the memoir isn't finished yet Uh, You mentioned that uh, The the, uh, Corey character Played by Rowan Campbell Mm. Is going out with the uh, Alison who is the granddaughter Of the Jamie Lee Of of Laurie Strode So here's a clip Between Jamie Lee Curtis Who's warning Corey About what his (laughs) behaviour Around her granddaughter
5: Alison is not equipped For this relationship And I will not let her get hurt So stay away You
0: started this you brought me in! You invited me! But you're the
4: one to blame. If I can't have her, no one will. You want to help and let her live her life. She has me now.
0: There you go. Yeah, you can see why Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Stone might be a little bit anxious for her granddaughter, given that yeah, Corey well, she had...
2: spotted it early. He did seem very pleasant, but this then is even suddenly
0: we see him meeting, Mike Myers. Yeah.
2: Oh yeah. No, she thought there was something funny about him, and she's right.
0: And what about um, Haddonfield here, the the town yes. of Haddonfield? Um, this whole whole idea of a malign environment, I suppose, yeah. Place does that come Which across? Which was
2: also interesting, the most mm. blighted town in America, and it it, it uh, the, the all, all the constant murder sprees every time he breaks out of, you know, of, of the mental asylum have had an effect and have brutalised the population who actually um, go around like hammer horror mobs at the drop of a hat they did it in the last film they did it in this film but as I say for the first sort of 30-40 minutes we're in relative competence an area of relative competence yeah. and then it just goes off a cliff in terms of its unpleasantness. I mean, there's no really? we know it's a slasher film, but well, um you know, reversing cars over people's heads and so on, really, is there any well,
0: yeah, but at the same time Halloween movies, they're not exactly well known for oh, their subtlety is, and their nuance. This are, we a, are we in a whole different place with directors? There
2: really was Charnel House um for 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 the last half an hour or so and and rather hard to watch and sort of inexplicable given what had gone before it really. Perhaps they felt they had to go out with a bang if um, it is going okay, and I a was
0: going to ask you just that has well, Halloween finished now do you think it's do you think it's done Dave
2: I think they might have done a prequel before but I'm sure there's more scope for for uh for okay,
0: nonsense. All right, um, more scope for nonsense. Oh, stars! I should ask you. Out of five, or do we get uh, pumpkins that for would Halloween? Be the two stars for me. The two stars so. for for you from you, Paul, for for mm. Halloween, and it's called Halloween Ends. But it is, is it? We don't know. We shall find <laughs> out. I guess in the next few years. <laughs> All right, let us move on to to Holy Island. Um, David, uh, character played by Conor Madden here and Rose played by Jean-Nicole Neonle, uh, they find it impossible to depart from an island where all the ferries um, seem to have been suspended. Now, I, I don't think we're dealing with transport difficulties and disruptions here, Ruth. I'm guessing the ferries, we might be in a more metaphysical realm, are we?
1: Yeah, I don't think. I mean, this is um, the film is called Holy Island, but I think that may be Holy Island. All right. I, I think that's perhaps the metaphor we're reaching for when when we're watching this. They are they are stuck, evidently, in purgatory. This is not giving anything away. Um, <clears throat> but um, yeah, they 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 need to get off this island. And you know, it's a funny thing. I watched this film, and I struggled to remember it afterwards. It was a sort of rather weird sensation. So I went back and I read the plot up again. And what I found out from the plot is that there's one ticket that will get them off the island, and only one person can get it. So it's a race against time. But actually, bizarrely watching the film, that plot point doesn't come through at all. Yeah. So what you get is the series of meditations between these two characters, most of which takes place in black and white, in which they... You know, they talk about l- their past lives, in particular, um, the central ca- character David, who's played by two different actors, um, uh, at, sort of at two different ages, really. So he's Conor Madden at the beginning, then he suddenly becomes Dermot McMurphy, who doesn't terribly look like him, but seems to be younger. Mm. Um, and... Um, so he remembers in particular kind of sort of traumatized life because he emigrated he missed his mother's funeral and he has regrets. Um so so Rosa she's kind of she's more perky and she you know she sort of livens things up a mm. bit. But they but they move around this this black and white space if you like this sort of abandoned mm. port town. Um at, from time to time they're picked up by a taxi driver who brings them to various places and he's got like the super chatty almost like kind of yeah. classic dublin taxi driver though, though it's not dublin so he brings them to various places they wind up in a pub at one stage there's more kind of exchanges between various people there's there's a character with a young man with tourette syndrome with with a crow on his shoulder and there's the mysterious appearance of a deck of tarot
0: cards. Right. So
1: if I've confused you, it's only because the plot doesn't wish to explain itself. Yes, it's think. not.
0: It's not giving us as they would talk about a straightforward narrative yeah. arc. That is not no, what, what is we're dealing
1: with. No, this is not Halloween, put it no. that
0: way. Okay, not. let's have a listen to uh, a clip which features Rosa, played by uh, Jean-Nicole Nyonla. And she's sharing her views on existence with David. And the David that we're hearing here is the David as played by Connor Madden.
3: Do you ever feel like you're walking
5: beside life,
3: not in it, like you've wandered out of existence?
5: Like the fairies took you.
3: Maybe that's what happened to me. I don't believe the me here is the real one. Does that make sense? No. The lost. The forgotten. They all end up washed ashore. It's keeping
0: the floating that's dangerous. And that's uh, Jean-Nicole Neonla and David uh, playing the character of Rose there and David played by Connor Madden. This thing, that uh, this idea that uh, Ruth mentioned to us there, Paul, the idea of two actors playing the mm. one character and it isn't... Like it's kind of simultaneously they're playing him. It isn't that mm. one bit is one character. Yeah, one
2: looks in the mirror and the other falls in the mirror. Yeah. Yeah. Mm.
0: So what does that bring to it? Uh, bring to the to the story or to the film?
2: I mean, I, I I suppose you could you you could argue that it, it brings um, a middle aged man's early middle aged man's perspective on on youth and, and how youth is wasted on the young and so on. But uh, Ruth said trapped in purgatory, and that's that about sums it up for me. All the, all, all the ideas are on the surface of this thing, you know, mm. which is not good. The actors, you cannot fault the actors. Uh, and 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 what they're required to do and sometimes what they're required to do in terms of movement and uh Jean Nicole Neonia is 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 a very interesting actor and you can't fault them but they're, they're they're what they're given to say they're like flat statements to each other like a very sort of self-conscious kind of theater and there's some re fried Beckett in there as well mm. there's, a, there's a there's a moment where the taxi driver starts talking about one of the two was saved and from from waiting for God or they also you know the old slapstick routine and and there's a reference to lucky and I don't know, it's just not, it's just not substantial enough. There's a, there's a scene at the end, which is some of the actual technical photography is good. There's a scene at the end, which goes into sort of uh, bled out colour of a carnival. Uh, and, and you're watching it, it's kind of slightly in different motion than it would normally be. That's the best thing in the film, it's right. like an art house installation, but the rest of it.
5: Yeah,
0: and it, Robert Manson, the director here, has cited Powell and Pressburger's A Matter of Life and Death as an inspiration. Um, I mean, I, I'm wondering how much of that is, you know, is there a kind of a, a film buffs aspect to this film that there, are there references, references to the Powell and Pressburger Yeah, I mean, I, I, immediately th-
1: I immediately thought of A Matter of Life and Death, because partly because Powell and Pressburger. Uh, decided to film um heaven in black and white yeah. and earth in technicolor which was a, a bold decision at the time and and that's the moment that Powell famously said there's no realism in film only surrealism so it's maybe even that that, that inspired mm. this film which is not obviously a film that's made in a realistic mode it's it's well it's surreal i mean i, mean, I really take paul's point that <laughs> It's really hard to pin this film down. And I did, I did note to myself that some will find it self-indulgent and arty, And I think my fellow critic is on that panel. Um, oh, there could be something in that. There could be something there. But I, I mean, I sort of went with its mood, which I enjoyed. I thought, as I, and you know, Paul's saying, the actors fantastic. They really mm. bought into... I think they were clearer possibly on Manson's vision than the audience would have mm. been at the end. And it does really revisit a lot of quite old tropes of Irish cinema. You know, the death culture, Ireland as this uh, sort of
0: backwards, and they, they, static they've,
1: place. They,
0: they've, they've, the crow or the raven on the shoulder is obviously a reference to Cacullin and the like. Yeah, you know, th- Those references the, are in there.
1: There is. And um, so, you know, so all of that is in it and... I mean, this is a, this is a film funded by the Arts Council under the authored Work Scheme, and so you know it's getting, which is nice. It's an art film that is getting a, a limited cinema release, but I I think to have done justice to this scheme, or to have brought more people into it, it might have been better to have something with a slightly more contemporary feel to it right. than than this. I mean, as I say, I enjoyed it. I thought it was very beautiful to an extent, and then I. As I say, I, I really couldn't remember the plot oh, afterwards. Oh right, and
0: Paul, I think you're, um, you're, you're not in the place that Ruth is in with this no, film.
2: No, well, I mean, A Matter of Life and Death, which I noticed the references to as well, was a film full of ideas, but they weren't on top of it. It was also an entertainment, which was part of Powell and Pressburger's genius. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a film where all the ideas are on top mm. of everything else and so
0: characters cannot function for me. All oh, right. Stars from you, Paul, too. on this one two from Paul what are you saying overall Ruth? I
1: was more generous I gave it Three and a half,
0: three and a half from Ruth that's uh, Ruth Barton and Paul Whittington are three films this evening uh, Holy Island we've just been talking about Halloween Ends in the Middle and Emily all of which are on release from this weekend Tomorrow night, Dublin audiences are in for a real treat when the woman famed as the most glamorous and gifted opera singer of our time, Angela Georgiou, will perform with the National Symphony Orchestra in an evening of operatic highlights with arias from one of her favourite composers, Puccini, along with Bizet, Dvorak, Gluck and many more. Yesterday I was given the absolute privilege of calling in to see and hear Angela Georgiou's rehearsals with the National Symphony Orchestra at the National Concert Hall and after those rehearsals, An opportunity to have a conversation with the soprano superstar I started by asking her about the importance of Puccini in tomorrow night's programme But also in her own life and in her work Uh,
4: Why Puccini, I don't know (laughs) I'm kidding Um, So I really like also Puccini I cannot tell you I like only Puccini in fact, I am thinking about Puccini because uh, now, uh, Bravo! By the way, uh, I just received um, a wonderful news that I I will sing um, a near future some new Puccini score. You imagine that! <laughs> I'm so happy to. Um, to make you discover this, but uh, because maybe Puccini, thanks to uh, Tosca, I, I did um, the movie, um, new production. So I'm full of of this uh, this personage, and also because Tosca, I feel and mostly Visidarte, d'arte, visi It's like my him, my, my, my aria. It's, it's me because she's an opera singer. And also because of Romanian singer, Hare Claire she was asking for um, a, a Giacomo Giacomo, but I'm the leading role. What about an aria for me? The tenor has two. <laughs> so be kind. That's why, in fact, we can take out the aria because it's, it's not a part of the subject, mm-hmm. of the drama. It's just uh, the character of an opera singer because I actually, uh, I'm one of the opera singer uh, in, in operatic world that I, I was aware that my life from the very beginning, because I start so earlier to sing, it will be everything, all my private life, and uh, everything um, in, in, um, in my behavior and also in, in everything I'm doing, it's 100% or 200% for art.
0: to Sing in the concert on Friday night. You're going to sing that final aria from from La Boheme. She's 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 telling Rodolfo, I, I, I'm just going somewhere, yes. but in fact she knows she's going to the other way. She knows that she's she's dying. So Puccini does this for a soprano. He's not the only one, but he does it particularly you're dying now, here's a beautiful aria for you to sing. What a way to go out. He's wonderful with the swan songs, isn't he? Mm-hmm.
4: It's, it's true. Uh, you know, um, generally in opera, we love to die. Like, I remember um, Sarah Bernal saying, uh, if you are if you are good, I will do the best dying tonight. And uh, by the way, and apropos, <laughs> because she was French, all the time I receive this, this compliment, oh, you're dying. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, but in Mimi, in this third act, it's one of the most beautiful um, um, opera, La Boheme, in this world. I think it's the m- most often s- singing uh, all over the world. And because uh, La Boheme, it's one of the opera we can adapt for our days, because when I was a teenager, having this dream all the time, we thought we are kings or queens of the world, and everything was possible. With even with no food, because I also was I was in in a, in a country where the food was absolutely mm. uh, something very rare, and with an almost almost nothing, we were happy, and we dream that we're going to be the most wonderful artists in the world.
0: You're referring to the fact that you know you were living in that early part of your life yeah. in in Ceausescu's Romania, but the fall of Ceausescu came just as your career started to to take off. And again, I won't leave Verdi out of the equation here because I know you would be very annoyed at me if I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. M was in uh, in Covent Garden, and subsequently, we had La Traviata, of course, in that famous production. Sir George Sholty conducting, Richard Eyre directing, yes. and. What strikes me, and even when I watched you for a brief moment in a concert, uh, rehearsal for a concert today, I I saw these characters. I didn't see just you on the stage, I saw these characters. The mixture, that balance, Angela, between acting the role, and singing the role. Where does that lie for you? Because Verdi and Puccini, they want both sing and act, please.
4: Yes, it's true. Uh, in fact, uh, I I really adore all my life theatre. I remember when uh, even if it was um, a communist, I remember BBC um, they made all Shakespeare with uh, Laurence Olivier and I had Door. I, I was in love with Laurence Olivier uh, and I adore... Um movies and theater gen- generally and then the opera uh, some of Ver- Verdi and all Puccini or French opera they are very theatrical it's like a soundtrack you know of of, uh, of a movie um, uh, I think it's a, uh, <laughs> my colleagues they told me all the time even during the, the rehearsal but Angela relax mm-hmm. I cannot be relaxed mm-hmm. when I, um, I I want to be that that woman, because uh, saying the words, like in theater, helps me, my line helps the music and vice versa. But for, uh, for the very beginning, when I start to learn a role, I read the text. And then I put the notes
0: but the acting and the text come first, which, which interests me in terms of a concert performance as you will be giving on, on, on Friday night. You know, you will give us an aria from Orfeo ed Euridice, Gluck, a kind of early type of opera, I suppose, in some ways. You will give us Dvorak, the song to the moon from Rosalka, a water sprite, you know. <laughs> you will give us Carmen. You will give us Bizet's Carmen. We don't need to explain who Carmen is. Oh,
4: but, but, by the way, uh, I must remind you that Habanera... Originally, the composer, uh, he, ha- he he composed a diff- different aria, not this one habanera. And please go on my CD of Carmen and listen to the original habanera of Georges Bizet. And then, thanks uh, to maybe he has advisor or I don't know, he, he, he thought maybe with that habanera, uh, I didn't have, I will not have... A, uh, success and he took, or to, st- or he still I don't know. He took a, um, a popular song from um, from a popular um, album from Spain and he liked this song this is a, like a popular song and it's like nobody in um, almost the big public they don't know uh, they know the song but they don't know it's from Carmen and it's it's such a big uh, big big uh, opera so uh, he in fact he um, made the, the orchestration because it's not so big it's a pump Ba-bum, 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 ba-bum. It's so Spanish, but this is the tune. And thanks to that song, Carmen is one one of the most popular operas.
0: And, and, and I mentioned I just mentioned those three. We've mentioned that you're doing Puccini, Manon Lescaut, and uh, La Boheme. In the midst of all of that, and others. So as you sing those arias, separate in a concert performance, do you switch character in your mind? It's not just a matter of oh, I'm going to go out now and sing the notes beautifully. Do you actually have to? you know, make that character switch each time.
4: Absolutely. Um, and mostly, I must tell you, I had the chance when I was uh, 18 in, in my first year of Academy of Music, I did uh, live television in Bucharest and I sang for the first time, Dio del Pasato. And then I uh, um, I sang all um, Anna Bolena or um, um, Vivaldi's um, you know arias um, or Madame Butterfly, La Rondine, Porgy and Bess. You can see all this on YouTube when I was little. So I I had this experience uh, of a good school and also being an opera singer, and I know how to switch immediately. Uh, style uh, it's also a technique it's also um, to be sincere it's very important not to play uh, to be Carmen I really oh, um, uh, all the areas like in my trip in they are here somewhere in my in my body and helps me immediately to uh, to to be the character
0: I noticed that in rehearsals, in fact. Um, You were kind enough to let us watch just Uh a little bit and I I saw the final. I won't mention the encores because they're too exciting. No, I will not. (laughs) That would be a terrible thing to do because the audience are in for real treats there but in, in, in what is the final piece of the, the, the programming of itself, the Decortus, um, lovely kind of Neapolitan swing, waltz feel to yeah, it, so and I'm... you were almost dancing to it as, <laughs> as you, you were playing with the orchestra, playing with the music.
4: Yes, yes. Um, I, uh, I really sang um, a, a lot of uh, Neapolitan songs or, uh, you know, um, songs there a little bit you know to make people to relax after so much drama <laughs> <laughs> uh we, we we need a little bit to relax and of course in my concerts i i sang for if i uh, I'm, i am i have a tenor or a baritone or another another singer uh i can have also um a, a big du, uh, duet. but uh when apropos y- I must tell you something because I it, it it remains to to my my mind. I remember <laughs> like 25 years ago a very important uh tenor and friend and colleague of mine, Luciano Luciano Pavarotti, he said, uh, you know, um, uh, a soprano uh, she cannot do um, an entire concert. Excuse me. <laughs> Where is Luciano to see me? <laughs> How many concerts I did by myself? No, it may be in the past and also very rare, even Carlos she did or or other Mirella Freyne, Montserrat Caballé, um, of course uh, all the time, um, very important uh, opera singers, they, they did some concerts. Uh, but uh, for me to have a concert I really feel that uh, I can be um, eclectic because I I like, um, also like a leader Liederabend, I'm not the type of singers to be boring, you know, to sing only, no offense to the German um, colleagues, to sing only Schumann, (laughs) Mm. okay, whatever. Um, In Germany maybe it's it's okay, but um, I, I, I like that um, when it's only one singer for an entire night to give uh, the pleasure for the, for the public to, to have um, more composers, more style, and more, in fact, more different atmosphere and feelings.
0: All of which people will get on Friday night. I can guarantee them that on the basis of the little bit of rehearsals that I saw. But can I ask you, this is Wednesday that we are speaking. The concert is on Friday night, Thursday. Is it true that tomorrow you will zip those two lips together and nothing, there will be no speaking at all?
4: Uh, I try all the time. I, I, but all my, all my life, um, before a performance and even before um, um, a general rehearsal, I prefer to have... Uh, silent because this is very healthy for for the voice. I really uh, consider to to give this advice for all colleagues of mine because um, this is the way uh, not to go to the doctor and operate all the time your uh, vocal cords because all my colleagues they had problems I uh, with the vocal cords and operating and cancel uh, uh, because of that of course I cancel in my in my life but I cancel because I was tired I had uh, in my private life some difficulties and when I feel I'm not good uh, from the uh, two bad things: uh, to uh, to hate myself and to make people unhappy. To be with the voice kaput, I prefer to go home or to stay home, not to make people to suffer. But the best medicine for a vocal cord is, as I said, also an in interview: is to find the the um, the power to say no and also to be careful with your voice and be silent and sleep is the best medicine.
0: Which is why you're so kind to speak to us today before that day of, of vocal rest. Angela Georgiou, an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thanks for being with us.
4: Thank you very, very much to be here. <laughs>
0: the wonderful Angela Gheorghe there, who will perform with the National Symphony Orchestra in a programme of songs, including Puccini, Bizet and Gluck tomorrow night Friday the 14th of October half past seven at the National Concert Hall and in fact our colleagues from the National Symphony Orchestra have just let us know that some tickets for the sold out show have just been uh, become available S- small number of tickets nch.ie uh, go to the website snap them up I would say they will go very quickly indeed Angela Giorgio National Concert Hall tomorrow night nch.ie anyone who has visited the Model Arts in Sligo will know the unique array of portraits in the Nyland Collection. To build on this, the gallery is presenting Portrait Lab, a visual art exhibition that explores the whole idea of painting portraits in its many extended, expanding forms. As part of this new exhibition, the model has commissioned two of Ireland's leading artists, Geraldine O'Neill and Mick O'Dea, to paint individual oil portraits of 18 children, in the county. The paintings will join the Nyland Art Collection where they will hang alongside works by William Orpin, Jack Butler Yeats, Mary Swansea, Nora McGuinness and many others. The Sunset Belongs to You sees the artists capture a snapshot of children from Sligo's many diverse communities. To tell us more about the new exhibition we're joined from Sligo by Director of the Model in Sligo Emer McGarry and artist Geraldine O'Neill. And I guess uh, Emer, to come to you first um, there's a kind of a hint in the title of the exhibition itself as to where this idea came from, The Sunset Belongs to You.
5: That's right. Well, it's actually inspired by Jack Butler-Yates, so that's a painting by Jack called The Sunset Belongs Mm. to You. And I guess, um, ultimately, the commission comes from an impulse for us to reflect um, and to enable Sligo's municipal art collection to reflect the many diverse communities that live in Sligo today and to help people to kind of um, imagine what the future might look like. An awful lot of painting and particularly portrait collections look at the past and we wanted to really use this as an opportunity to imagine um, a really to get a glimpse of what a beautiful, hopeful future might be, and we're very lucky to have uh, eighteen incredible children and their families who have agreed to take part in this uh, brilliant adventure through portraiture with us.
0: Yeah, and the other, but the, the other aspect of the inspiration behind the the exhibition itself is, in fact. A, a particular portrait that's hanging in the gallery or that hangs in the gallery some of the times.
5: Yep, it's actually, it is on view at the moment and it's mm. a portrait by William Oropin of Michael Davitt who was um, a Mayo man. You know, he was born in uh, 40, 1846. He, he was, himself and his family were evicted from their home when he was just four years of age. They actually walked to Lancashire. They didn't speak the language. Um, and then, of course, he lost his arm. He, he started work at nine and he lost his arm at 11 in a cotton mill accident. So, but you know, despite his many many challenges, uh, Davitt went on to be an incredible thinker, activist, and you know made inc- really profound change for ordinary Irish people. Um. So I suppose we wanted to kind of hold up this portrait a little bit, um, and say you know, it, like look at what's possible and look at the potential that children have today.
0: Yeah. And- uh, Sorry, go ahead, Emma.
5: I was going to say there's another really interesting aspect to the painting in terms of the lineage of the artist because Orpin, of course, was a you know, cast a huge figure in Irish art. He taught at the Metropolitan School in Dublin, where he, he taught Sean Keating, who went on to teach hmm. uh, Kerry Clark, who taught Mick O'Dea, who taught Geraldine O'Neill. So, uh, and we actually are so lucky now we're going to have them all represented well, in the collection.
0: That is an amazing lineage, and let's go to Geraldine O'Neill on, on, on that very point. But what I wanted to pick up on with you, Geraldine, is yeah, you know, William Orpen painting Michael David and so many portraits that we might think of, indeed your own portrait of John Rocha. Um, it, it's of people who have a particular position in society, a particular notoriety or celebrity in society. You know, in, in olden times, as it were, it was the kings and the queens and the nobility. But what, what this exhibition is about is about the children, the young children of the county, if you like, the ordinary people. What does that bring to you when you're making a portrait?
3: Oh, gosh. Well, you know, it's just it's number one, it's an incredible privilege, but also, you know, normally portraits are pictures of people of power and children in societies don't usually have power, but they're full of potential. And they're full of, you know, the future. They're full of the everything. So it, it's kind of, um, I feel like it's a, a kind of a collaborative process in that I'm working with the children. I'm learning from them. And they have mm. so much to give and so much to offer. But, you know, neither of us are telling each other what to do or how to do it. And like, I want my pictures that, that um you know, when they look back at them, it's like a moment in time. Yeah. It's... um. It's a snapshot of them in time in that it's a still image. So it reflects a moment of time and that they can look back at them and remember that moment of time. But also, I think the kids here, the the, the young ad- uh, children, the adults here, they're on the cusp of, you know, uh, adulthood. They're on the cusp of growth. They're on the cusp of discovering so much stuff. And, uh, y- you know, we don't know mm. what they're going to do or what. What they're going what to, what their
0: future holds, for, their them. Future holds yeah. for them. Let's have a, let's have a, a look at uh, a couple of the portraits of your own works, uh, Geraldine. And I love that the title. We're going to tweet first of all. These will be available on at RTE Arena if you want to see the images as we speak about them. And Geraldine, I'm putting up first of all, "Is Fager le Schrodinger an gaochra arasla." And this, of course, is picking up on the old Irish proverb, "Ní feidir leis an as a type of bird. You can't live on two two beaches at the same time you can't do two things you can't be in two places at the same time. maybe you describe the portrait here the the subject first of all, who is she
3: well, the subject is my daughter shun <laughs> and um you know she's um you know, she was about what? Uh, she was about eight at the time. Very precious child, and she's she's holding her precious goldfish in a bag. And the kind of she has, I suppose, at that age, you have a kind of goldfish view of the mm. world, and the goldfish has also a view of the world <laughs> through the plastic bag, I suppose. And, um, and what yeah, age? She's, she's,
0: what age is she now? She's now sixteen. So this it must be very interesting to get her perspective on this particular painting, because in the background as well, we have a box which it looks as if it's. Dolls and toys, but it might be other things that are in that box as well. Kind of figures and and characters, almost from stories. They could be.
3: Well, the 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 background is appropriated from uh, Johann Patner f- from uh, a painting, The Temptation of Saint Anthony. And um, you can imagine he's there and he can choose whatever path. So she's kind of as if she's like, you know, beamed into this painting nearly and she stands there and she's kind of out of kilter or out of, out of size for this painting. But she's standing there and that's only the background. Yeah. The other appropriated image is her drawing of a cat in a box, which... Kind of references. I know cat I can see yes,
0: box. I can see the cat there in the midst yeah. of that box as well. Yeah, yeah, you have to look quite closely to see it, but yes, there it is. We have the and 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 Schrodinger's it's, cat, of course, can be yeah. in two places at the one time. Coming back to you uh, on things first of all, Emer, um Mick o involvement here. Mick, famous for the for the live painting uh, event, what is he? What is he doing in that uh, side of things for this exhibition?
5: Um, Well, he he is undertaking some live portrait sittings for us from uh, Tuesday the 1st uh, of November to Saturday the 6th. He's going to be painting two portraits of these children every day from one from 10am until 1pm and another one from 2.30 until 5.30 so all the public are are welcome and of course Mick is really he's known for his very lively yeah. um, engagement with the sitters so it's it's sure to be something really exciting to see him uh, create Yeah something. I've
0: seen him I've seen him do that uh, live painting and it is an extraordinary thing to watch and in the interests of Family Harmony for you Geraldine I'm making sure now to tweet the second of your portraits <laughs> that we have The Age of Reason which is your son. Uh, yeah. lest there be, we cause war in the O'Neill household this oh evening.
3: Well like four kids actually. Yeah. Oh there yeah. you go. War <laughs> so is so now there's ensues. There's always war. Um, yeah it's Age of Unreason and it's my son Fake. And he's standing in a uh, painting uh, again. As it happens, even though they were done at different times, it happens to be appropriated from Patner again. And it's the painting rests on the flight, which tells the story, the nativity story of refugees uh, mm. seeking shelter. But in Fiegh's hand, he holds um, his drawing of. The nativity drawing, yeah. and it's, it's the, his drawing is a bit like a memento mori, or it's a, a moment in time that can never be revisited. And
0: what so, do you just, what do fake now?
3: Feak, feak now is twenty, and in <laughs> our college.
0: <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> So he (laughs) picked up something from what you were doing, clearly. Uh, And and I guess this is all about um, the Portrait Lab uh, is also part of it, Emma. Very briefly, that opens tomorrow night.
5: It opens tomorrow night. It's a thematic um, exhibition, features 10 artists, Geraldine and Mick included, but many others. And I guess it poses a series of open-ended questions about what can a portrait be, what can constitute a portrait, but also how do portraits function and who are the people who are reflected in public art collections. Well,
0: listen, lovely to speak with both of you this evening and uh, would love to be down that part of the country at some point to get a chance to see those uh, particular portraits on view. Immer McGarry, Director of the Model in Sligo, artist Geraldine O'Neill, who was commissioned for The Sunset, belongs to you as part of Portrait Lab. Portrait Lab opens tomorrow night, Friday, October the 14th. We'll run through until Saturday, January the 21st. Tickets are limited for the Mick o live sessions as part of the Sunset Belongs to You, which takes place on from November the 1st through until November the 6th. And that is our lot on this Thursday evening here on Arena. Uh, Claire Hogan researched. Amandine Passa-Divine was the broadcast coordinator. Tommy O'Sullivan was on sound this evening and tonight's programme produced by Keshi. Talk to you tomorrow night, 7 o'clock once again, here on RT Radio 1.